Let us turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 to 10. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 through 10. When you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's holy word. Hear now the word of the Lord. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. My friends, this is the holy, inerrant, infallible word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. This is part three of my happiness sermon series. And today we are going to go through the exercise of happiness. I'm just going to go straight into it without an intro this week. And then we'll go to chapter one. Uh, last week, uh, chapter three was missing. And so a lot of people's happiness was disturbed. So that's a test for you, not for me. It was a test for you. So uh, there you have that. But we're go we'll go straight to chapter one this morning. Chapter one, what does godliness have to do with it? What does godliness have to do with it? You see, when it comes to learning how to be happy, we saw in Philippians 4 that Paul used two words for learn. Two types of a different word. There are two different words, but we translate it as learn. One way to learn was to learn through experience to be taught or instructed. It's when you're trained on a discipline. That's a learning and you gain then by exercising what you have been taught to do. That's what one way to mean, one way that learn means. The other learn was by revelation. It cannot be gained through merit, effort, human status. It was a secret revealed to the Apostle Paul. But through the Word of God and the Spirit of God, it is being revealed to the disciples of Christ. That's what we learned last week. But this week, we will go over the learning of happiness through training or the exercise of happiness. So what does godliness have to do with it? And if we continue on with the understanding that the biblical notion of contentment is synonymous with happiness, then we find from verse 6 that godliness and happiness are inextricably tied together. That means then that your measure of happiness is tied to your godliness. And I will go even further to say that your measure of godliness is displayed by your level of happiness. And so what is godliness? Well, that's an easy question to answer, isn't it? It's like being 
God or like being like God or having the qualities that God desires you to possess because God possesses them. Literally, though, the word for godliness in the Greek is eusebia. First part is you, just like Eugene, right? You means good. So Eugene means good genes. So if your name is Eugene, that means you have your name because your parents thought you had, it's not like I named myself, so your parents thought you had good genes. So you is good. But the second part of Eusebia is Sabomai. And so Sabomai is a reverence. It's worship. Matthew 15, 9 uses the word sabomai and says in vain. When, they're, when Jesus is quoting Isaiah, it says, in vain do they worship me. Worship is sabomai. So, in more than one way, your happiness is tied to your veneration to or reverence for God. And more simply put, true happiness is tied to true worship. And what's also true then is that even the worship service here is also a training up in the gospel. And yes, there are liturgical elements of the worship service that should be training you to godliness. And it should go without saying, but the worship service isn't for mere entertainment. If it was just for you to be entertained, it would be a sham of a service. And so I actually had pushback a little while ago about that. People say, but you don't understand, Pastor Eugene. I got chills when this choir sang this song. And some even, some even had said to me, they even sang a song that you would like. <laughs> But you see, I'm not the bar of what a good godly worship service is. But neither are you. The scriptures are the standard. Whether you got chills or not, that's not the standard. And I need to say that again. Whether you got chills or not is not the standard. You could have wept, though, to a really unbiblical song on Sunday. But if it was unbiblical, that means it was unsound, it was unedifying, and then not glorifying. So that's why we say it must be biblical. We must go back to what God desires in his holy word. I am not the standard. You are not the standard. The word of God is the standard. So your worship, starting from Sunday, yes, I get it, you start your week from Sunday, so your worship starting from Sunday, but throughout your week as well, is a part of your training up in godliness. And a key measure to see if you truly have true godliness is, wait for it, yes, happiness. And it's there for our benefit. Because can you have a form of godliness and it's not good? Why are these two things tied together? Because can you have a form of godliness and it not be good? It's like, how can that be? But yes, oh yes, you can. It's shown to us in the prior verses. 
There were false teachers who would take on godliness or what seemed to be godliness for gain, it says. They would teach false doctrines because they are of depraved minds and they would try and profit for themselves wealth in this world and apparently only in this world. Verses 3 to 6 are put together. It's almost like one sentence, but we read just from verse 6. Let me read verse 3 to 6 together as it stands as a sentence, pretty much. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. The false teacher uses godliness to puff himself up with conceit and inevitably understands nothing. Instead of bringing about godliness, he brings up all these other despicable qualities of man, utter evil. All because he thought of godliness as a means of, what does it say in verse 5? As a means of gain. But if you've been paying attention, you would say, but wait, What do you mean these bad people use godliness as a means of gain? Because godliness is a means of gain. The word for gain in verse 5 and 6 is the exact same word. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain from verse 6. It's the same word. So what is the difference? The word that differentiates the two kinds of godliness is what? Happiness. It's contentment. And if you have it, then you have great gain, mega gain. And what kind of gain is mega gain? Is it just spiritual gain? Again, I want to reiterate that there are camps that believe Godliness or the way of holiness is like a chore. Just do them. Sing if you want, but I'm going to gripe the whole way through. At least I'm doing it, God. You should be happy that I'm doing it, and then I'll just look for my reward in heaven. However, that is not what we are taught in the Bible. Just a few chapters before, in chapter 4, verse 7 to 8, it says, rather train yourself for godliness for the For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Godliness, the right way, with contentment, with happiness, holds promise for this life and also for the life to come. Yes, happiness is for right now as well to the Christian. And I honestly believe that it's because we've missed this that you don't see Christians aspiring to live godly lives because these things go back and forth with each other. And then we hear things now like on our social media or wherever you listen to, maybe you've heard someone said it too, they just want to live quote-unquote real lives, right? I just want to be real. So you know what they'll do? 
What do you do when you think of the word real in your life? I just want to be a real Christian. So what do they do? They'll curse. They'll drink to get drunk. You know why? Because they're keeping it real. Because they're the ones that are truly authentic. Not you, you bunch of pious Christian church folk. You're the hypocrites. I'm not a hypocrite. I'm, re- I'm keeping it real by drinking till I get drunk and cursing, saying whatever I want. I'm just being authentic. And I like to make the case that if you're someone that claims to be a Christian, even a teacher, but you don't live a godly life, you don't even desire to live a godly life, you are precisely who Paul is talking about from verses 3 to 5. You will bring up upon every single person that's even around you, but especially upon yourself, every evil. Every evil, even to those that you mean to lead. How do I know this? How do you know this for sure? Well, the Bible tells me so. And so we are commanded to be happy, and we are also commanded to be godly. And we see here that godliness and happiness are tied together. Christians stop separating them. They are not to be separated. So if they are tied together, how are now we to exercise this knowledge? Chapter 2, nothing. Chapter 2, nothing. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Um, There is a concept of nothingness that Paul introduces here with what is seemingly a simple statement. And at face value, yes, what he is saying is absolutely true. We have brought nothing into this world, and we will not take anything out. But how is this statement then tied to the former, godliness with contentment is great gain? Because he uses the conjunction for, that means because. Godliness with contentment is great gain because we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. So these are not two separate statements. They're tied together as well. So if you want to learn how to be content, how to be happy, you have to understand the concept of nothing. If you want to be happy, you have to understand the concept of nothing. If we brought nothing into the world, then we can easily conclude that we were nothing before the world. What does that mean? It means you're nothing. It means you are nothing. It means you deserve nothing. And it also means you can do nothing. And in the end, if nothing becomes nothing, there's no loss. If there's no loss, then why are you so upset? It's upsetting because the upsetting comes because we think we are or we wish to be something when we are not. And so the best remedy is the truth. And so in our day and age today, perhaps, you may hear something. Imagine you told someone that. You're nothing. You might say, how dare you? I am something. Great. But if you are nothing before the world and you believe that you are something now, If you're nothing before the world, there's no one that can dispute that. If you're nothing before the world and you're something now, then what made you something? 
What made you anything at all? This is why Jesus Christ says in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Just vapor. It's mist. Less than that. The only reason that you are something is because of your connection to the vine. It's because that you are engrafted to the vine. And if that's the case, why are you chasing riches, is what Paul is asking. Why are you chasing riches as if they were something in itself? Why are you chasing these riches as if it were something in itself? Proverbs 23.5 says it, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to to desist when your eyes alight on it it is gone for suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven that's riches as soon as you lay eyes on it, it's like ooh, it just flies away wealth is a nothing in itself wealth in itself is a nothing so the more you try to put weight on riches than it actually is, the more you try to put the weight on riches, you'll soon find out that when it soon disappears, you'll be standing on nothing. And so here's a simple test. When your bank account is low, the, your portfolio tanks, imagine your retirement fund's gone, just like that, it's gone. The biggest problem of your, of your life right now, the biggest problem that you're facing right now is money. If, these are, if any of these things are the case, the foundation of your life is shaken to its core when these other things are shaken, that's the test, isn't it? Isn't that the test? So what is the biggest concern for a Christian? The biggest concern for the Christian is then to abide in Christ is to abide in Christ. That's your biggest concern because to abide in Christ is godliness. That's what it is. Godliness is to abide in Christ. King Saul, he's a, he's a very good-looking man. We did this in 1 Samuel, didn't we? He was a head taller than everybody. Everybody would be standing like in the town square and you saw Saul because he was that much taller. And you saw that even though he was taller, he was really good-looking. Good-looking, tall, he was chosen as king over Israel. He thought he was something, though, without God. He thought he was something without God. So he didn't listen to him. See, when you think you're something when you're not, and you think you're something without God, you don't listen to God. Godliness isn't something that you desire. I mean, you'll say this, but I kind of listen, don't I? Come on Sundays, I don't really get drunk, just maybe on a Friday, you know, that kind of, you kind of listen to him. And so he kind of listened to God. So when the Lord told him not to spare Amalek in 1 Samuel 15.3, he says this in 1 Samuel 15.3, kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, Camel and donkey. This is what God told Saul to do. Because the Lord was going to use Saul to bring judgment upon the Amalekites because of what they did to Israel. But what did Saul do? 
Saul actually fought against the Amalekites. He did defeat them. It was a crushing defeat that the Amalekites faced and endured. But Saul decided, you know what? I'm going to spare the king. I'm a merciful kind of guy. Kill everybody? That's mean. I'm not a mean guy. I'm a good guy. He decides to spare the king. Not just the king, though. You know what? There's some really good sheep out there. Ox, calves, lambs, and then all these other things that were good. You know, I won't destroy those things. But the other things that I deem as not good, I will destroy that. See, people, whether we realize it or not, a lot of times when you don't seek godliness, you realize that you think that you are something when you're nothing. And then what happens is you say, I'm going to dictate to you, God, what I think is good. I felt good before. This kind of music really, really is my jam. So that's what I really want, that kind of thing. Saul was the arbiter of what was good and bad. What Saul didn't realize, though, was that without God, he was nothing. And the subsequent story that we went over in 1 Samuel was about Saul diminishing into nothing. Which brings us to the point, we bring nothing out of this world. We brought nothing in, we can take nothing out. It's a sobering reality that Paul is showing us that without God, we bring nothing in and we leave with nothing. Saul thought he was amassing great wealth. He thought he was amassing the good things. These things are of weight though, aren't they? These things have value. They have worth. But what did he leave with in life? He left with nothing. So the lesson is this, be careful of amassing nothing. If you brought nothing and can bring out nothing, then in humility, seek to be godly. And you'll see that it is the key to happiness. Chapter three, what is necessary? What is necessary? Verse eight says, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content or happy. So if we talk about what we want, if we came together and said, you know what, let's have a little group session. If we started to talk about the things that we want, that list can be endless. Because that's not the question, though. The real question is, do you know what you need? That's the real question. Do you know what you need? People do ask me often, especially around this time of year, people, what do you want, you know? And I sometimes wonder, what does that matter? Because what does it matter what I want? Because the first question, if the first question is, what do I want, but I do not know what I need, then my life is a hot mess. <clears throat> In Luke chapter 10, Luke tells a story of Mary, Martha, and Jesus. Luke chapter 10, verse 30 to 42 Jesus would go into Martha's house. Martha would welcome her. And then she had called to her sister Mary. Her Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to Jesus' teaching. But Martha was distracted, it says, with much serving. 
She was distracted with much serving. So she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled. Where have we heard that before? You are anxious and troubled. We've heard that when Jesus told his disciples that he gives them his peace. Do not be anxious or troubled. He goes, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, this is for those who may have answered in the previous chapter, I'm not rich, so you know what? I'm not worried about that. This one doesn't relate to me, so, but I will make it up with hard work. Look at me. I work hard, you know. I can't give much, but I can work really hard. You know, hard work is not a bad thing. But our all sad riches aren't a bad thing either. But here the Lord shows us the truth. Hard work, if it distracts you, is a bad thing. Martha's hard work left her anxious and troubled. She was not happy because she didn't have the one thing that was necessary. So if you have riches, great. But that's not necessary. If you work hard, that's also great. But that's not necessary. Ooh, that's a, that's a hard one for some other people to swallow. Because even if you have all these things, but you don't have the necessary thing, you will not be happy. And this is why I think this may trouble some of you. Because you relate to Martha. And so Christ has a teaching for you. If you would only sit at his feet. Jeremiah Burroughs, in The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, it's a book I highly recommend for anybody to read. It's a book that I forced our staffers, our praise team members, and our elders also, and our deacons to also read. But this is a great book. In his book, he says this, Before the soul, the soul sought after this and that, but now it says, I see that it is not necessary for me to be rich, but it is necessary for me to make my peace with God. It is not necessary that I should live a pleasurable life in this world, but it is absolutely necessary that I should have pardon of my sin. It is not necessary that I should have honor and preferment, but it is necessary that I should have God as my portion and have my part in Jesus Christ. It is necessary that my soul should be saved in the day of Jesus Christ. How do you alleviate all that anxiety and trouble? And so our Lord in Matthew chapter 6, 33 also taught us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. My grandfather's favorite verse. On the flip side, unhappy and discontented people add anxiety and trouble upon themselves and those around them. Self-centered, proud, boastful. They have their priorities in the reverse order, actually, of Matthew 6, 33. Unhappy people will say, I will find everything else first, and then I'll find God. 
Let me do this first and I'll find God later. It starts from when you're very young. I have these tests, you know. I have exams. I need to get into a good college. I need to get a good job. I need to find a good wife. I find all these other things first, then I'll seek God. But I'm afraid it doesn't work that way. And anxiety and trouble will be heaped upon you. And the ironic part, though, is that it doesn't even matter if you get what you want. Even by getting what you want, you end up getting burning coals heaped upon your head. The recently deceased actor Matthew Perry had an incredible uh, testimony in his book, and I don't know if you're familiar with that or who he is, but he was a friend. Um, Not mine, many of yours maybe, but he had this prayer, and he was at the end of his wits. He had this prayer. He said, God, make me famous, and I'll let you do anything you want. Just make me famous. And three weeks later, he got his part as Chandler and friends. But he soon found out that all the things that he had wanted led him to nothing. The ironic part is that even if you get what you want, if Matthew 6.33 is flipped, you wind up heaping burning coals on top of your head. Leads us to chapter 4, desire. Desire. Verse 9 says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The picture that we see here is is that desire is what leads man. Desire is what's leading you. And if what leads you are riches, you will fall. And the more intriguing part here is that it shows us that desire also leads us into other many desires. The desire to be rich not only makes us fall, ensnared, but also puts us into many other desires that plunge us into ruin and destruction. It's like what the teacher says or the preacher says in Ecclesiastes 1-2, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. It's all a mist. It's all nothing. It's like trying to fill your belly. You're hungry. You're trying to fill your belly. You're starving. All you do is drink water. Worse, you know what? Not even water. You just take big gulps of air. Like, you know what? I'm just going to fill my belly. And you may feel full for a while, but without true sustenance, you will start to wither away. But you keep on filling your belly with nothing. And I find that when the Bible talks about desire in this context, it usually has a lot to do with envy. And when envy is produced in your life, you aren't just led by your desires. You're tied to a rock. The desires are slapped onto the rock and the rock thrown into the sea. Our desires are driven by envy. It's only if I make this much more Only if I made this much more, I'd be happy. Only if my house was a little bigger, I'd be more comfortable. 
Only if my car wasn't as old, then I'd be happy. But here, the incredible deep truth of the matter is that once you get those desires fulfilled, you open yourself up to a multitude of senseless and harmful desires. That's a big statement. All I just wanted was a little bit more of my paycheck. Why is that a terrible thing? I just want a tiny bit bigger house, God. Why is that a big thing? What's wrong with getting a new car? But it's that one thing that you think you need and someone tries to tell you otherwise. It's like, you're ready to give your full defense for the faith in the object of that desire, aren't you? And I'm no exception. I realize as I stay married, my wife is pure and more innocent than I am in the ways of the world. Uh, these days, TVs, TVs are great. Uh, the prices are great. But once you get into TVs, there's no stopping, right? Not just the size. It's not just about like whether you have a 55 or 65, 75, 82, 90, whatever, 100,000. Whatever the size is, that's not just that. This is the resolution. It's OLED versus LCD. Not the old LCD, by the way. Is it HDR compatible? Does it bleed after a while? What's the refresh like? Refresh rate like, you also need a sound bar with it. You're not just going to hear your TV from the TV speaker. That's, that's crude. You know, what are we, in the Stone Ages? And so I was showing my wife, these are the TVs that I want. This one is $80 more, though, but it's from a better brand. And she's like, ah, I don't know. Anything's fine. And so when you get into it, and I realized, you know what, maybe I'll just get the $80 cheaper TV. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I, I bought the $80 cheaper TV, and then I canceled the order. Had it, it was on its way. It was shipping. And I said, cancel. Turn it back. Turn right around, because I'm not going to accept this delivery. And I'm going to wait for that $80 more TV. I realized these things, whether you realize it or not, it's there. My wife isn't perfect. I mean, you know. She knows a lot more than me about a lot of things, though. If I had to ask her about, I, I asked her, like, what's the difference between eyeliner and mascara? And she's like, what? I thought they were the same thing. They both go on your eyeball. And so why do you spend so much on eyeliner when you have mascara? And that didn't make any sense to her. But it made sense to me. $80. Anyway, but uh, those are the things that we are told and shown to us. The heart is revealed if you would just think about it. Check your desires, because oftentimes you'll find that if unchecked, you will be robbed, not only of your happiness, but you are walking down the path to ruin and destruction. So what are we to do as we check our desires? And our Lord Jesus tells us the way. In Luke 13, 24, he says, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Entering through the narrow gate is not easy, but Jesus made it clear. He told his disciples to strive. And the Greek word for strive is agonizomai. It means to 
agonize. That's where we get the word agonize from, to that kind of strive. And that means that if you want to enter the narrow gate, you must do so by struggling and straining like the running athlete who would struggle and strain to finish, to cross the finish line. No matter what his muscles are telling him to do, what his muscles are telling him to do, he must give it everything beyond what he thinks he is physically capable of. But because Jesus tells us this, we can do it. Because he tells us to agonize, we can do it. There's this great study uh, from Harvard in 1957 about rats. 1957, there weren't as many animal protection rights, I think. So they were able to do some of these experiments. What they did was they took rats and they would put them in like this bucket of water. No way out. And, you know, rats can swim. So the people doing this experiment thought they can swim for at least, you know, a good chunk of time. But these rats would just drown after a few minutes. It was incredible. The rats are very capable swimmers. I don't know if you know. If you're in New York City, you know. They just don't get drowned. Nothing happens. Like people die, but rats, they're, they're, you know, people always say cockroaches will survive. Uh -uh. Rats. And so, but then if you put them in this bucket of water, they would just drown and die. But what this uh, experimenter decided to do was he would put the rats in the water. They would try to tread and swim for a little bit. And then right before they would give up, he would, which, no, no rat lasted for more than 15 minutes, by the way. Like two, three minutes, or 15 minutes, longest. He would pick the rats up, save them dry them off, give them rest for only a few minutes, only a few minutes. And then you know what he would do? He would put the rats back in the water and to see how long they swam. So how long did they swim? Two, three extra minutes? 10 minutes, 15 minutes? An hour? They swam for two and a half days. People, people psychologists have taken this and used this experiment like, look, all you need is hope. Yeah, but I'm like, hope in what? You need to have hope in something. And our hope isn't in just some kind of ethereal thing. I just want to be hopeful. Our hope is a sure hope. It's an elpis. It's a sure hope because of what Jesus Christ not only said, but what he did. What did he do? He died for us. He rose again. And he says that if you believe in me, you will have eternal life. So agonize. Swim. Be godly, you can do it, and you can. You just don't try. And the opposite of that is just giving up and drowning and giving in to Satan, thinking that the world is in control when it is not. But some of us have failed, haven't we? A lot of times in our journey, we have failed. In chapter 5, the pangs of providence. This is the last chapter. The pangs of providence. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is a famous maxim. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. There is no article uh in the Greek, so people always wondered how to... Um, translate that for the love of money it can't be the because there must be a bunch of it can't be the only root it can't be the ultimate root so that's why they put the article uh 
The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. However, because it's missing in the Greek, you would kind of think it as the love of money, root. Love of money, root. All kinds of evils. And so, excuse me, the love of money had made some wander away from the faith. They pierced themselves, it says, with many pangs. And the word for pangs is a word that displays intense pain and anguish. And yes, this is what you end up, this is what you end up with when instead of practicing godliness, you practice evil. Instead of practicing godliness, you practice evil, you end up going through pangs. And some of us, maybe we are already going through something like this. What now? What now is what I really want to answer. And I want to remind you of what we went over in the book of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 5 to 6. It says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The Lord disciplines those that he loves. He chastises those that he receives. And so, how are we to look at pangs then? How are we to look at pangs? Because of our sin, you are in pangs, are you not? Especially the graver the sin, the graver the pang. There is a very controversial somewhat controversial, pretty controversial, uh, theologian, St. Isaac the Syrian. He wrote in Arabic. He wrote, this, he wrote this statement that I kind of think about a lot. Not because things are actually really, really absolutely true, but there are some truisms in there. And this is what St. Isaac the Syrian said, the love of God is the fire of hell. The love of God is the fire of hell. That, that kind of statement will make you pause. You think he was maybe, you know, being provocative just to be a provocateur, right? I don't think so. I think he really believed that. What does it mean that the love of God is the fire of hell? And what he tried to do is try to explain, again, not perfect, but something worth thinking about, a thought experiment, if I may. If God is love, then God cannot stop being love because he is love. If God is love, then everything he does is love. And so St. Isaac the Syrian would kind of say it this way. It's a very kind of, you know, short statement. It can be mistaken or mistook or misunderstood. So I want to kind of explain what I've come, with, come up with. I think that there is fire for the Christian. I think there is fire for the Christian, and I'm going to defend this position. There is a fire, but I think there are two kinds of fires. The pangs that you face will be one of those fires, because there is also two kinds of resurrections. There's two kinds of resurrections. In John 5, 29, Jesus Christ says himself, those that do good will be resurrected to life and those that have done evil will be resurrected to judgment. There's two kinds of resurrections. One resurrection to life, one resurrection to judgment. And so, the one thing that I want us to understand is that there is one thing that separates the two 
resurrections. What is the resurrection that's, uh, what is the one thing that separates the two kinds of resurrections? It is Jesus Christ. Where does that verse come from? From verse 29, what is the context? Jesus Christ says from verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus Christ is the judge. He's the one that separates the resurrections. So Jesus Christ will separate those two, and you are in either one of those two resurrections. Now, let's go back to the fire. Do Christians get fire? Yes, 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. I'm going to keep on going. But... Rejoice, be happy in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We're going to go through the glory of happiness next week is our final part in this series. But there it is. There is a fiery trial that all Christians will go through. How do you know you're going to survive? How do you know you're going to survive the fire? Pangs are incredibly terrible. There is nothing else, none other than Jesus Christ that separates the two fires, that separates the two resurrections. If you are in Jesus Christ, the fire will refine you. If you are not in Jesus Christ, there is a fire but that is an eternal judgment, an eternal punishment. And so if you are in sin and you are facing pangs as a result of the sin, know this, in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. And he will even use those pangs to refine you. Hold on to Jesus Christ. Strive agonize to go through the narrow gate and be the godly Christian that he has called you to be. And through that, know that your happiness, true happiness, is tied in you exercising then the godliness he has for you. All his ways are true and just. They lead us into joy. And so joyfully we follow with rejoicing we go through any kind of fiery trial because of what? Because of us knowing who our Savior and Lord is. So let us hold on to the faith that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. He will never let us go. In fact, he promises, and I will be with you to the end of the age. So holding on to the promise, let us strive and run the race. Let us train ourselves and exercise happiness, godliness, and all that he desires from his people. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for the word that you give us. And many times we are forgetful, for we are still human, finite, sinners. But Lord, we pray that you would receive our heart of repentance as we come to you now, asking that you would mold us and shape us so that we can be godly people as you desire, godly individuals, godly men, godly women, godly husbands, godly wives, a godly church. So please, Lord, continue to lead us, sanctify us, and make us more like you. Let's take this time to pray and lift up our petitions to the Lord, our prayers, asking also for forgiveness. If you have a life, you have something in your life that is actually not good, that must be burned away, man, before the fire gets hotter, repent of those sins and come before the Lord asking that you can live a life that is pleasing to him. Let's pray.